All right, all right, all right. All right, all right, all right. Matthew McConaughey is here. Sean, all right, all right, all right. Jeremy, all right, all right, all right. Peter, all right, all right, all right. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman. I'm joined by my regular co-host, succinct phrase creator for two or three web forums, Jeremy Ruggles. You can't see it right now, but I'm flossing my teeth. Okay. Got to keep the teeth clean so you can create those phrases. Oh, what did you say? Uh, you're the phrase creator. Oh, Okay. Cool. All right. And we're also joined by Tinker Toy historian Peter Cook. Yeah, there's a lot to them. I'm tinkering around with the history. Might rewrite it. Some Tinker Toy revisionist history in the works. New podcast coming mm-hmm. soon from Peter Cook. Mm, yeah, you know it. Well, until we get that one off the ground, should we talk about a record? Maybe a jazz record? Yeah. Keep that keep that jazz train rolling here on I'd Buy That for a Dollar? Yeah. Jeremy, you got a jazz record for us? I do. What is it? The people seem to really love the Les McCann and Eddie Harris live I brought. So I grabbed another live jazz record. And originally, I was thinking about doing the Keith Jarrett Colm concert because there's a pretty interesting story behind that, but it's worth too much, even though you'll find it in cheap spots. And by too much, you mean like 10 to $15? Yeah. So not, not a super expensive, but kind of outside of our criteria. But you'll find it in cheap spots. That's where Definitely. I found mine. But anyways, I brought another record that has Keith Jarrett on it. It is Charles Lloyd in the Soviet Union, recorded at the Tallinn Jazz Festival. And I'm just going to start with the first song, and I'm just going to play like, there's four songs. There's four songs on this thing, so... Four songs, four clips. Yeah, I'm going to play one from each song. Do it. First one is Days and Nights Waiting.
love that authentic dollar bin crackle there on that record. You know, I think it's like a little bit classist to only like records that don't have a little bit of that sound. You know, this, this podcast is all about, uh, digging through those dirty dollar bins, buying some records that maybe have a little bit of noise. Sometimes it's okay. And I'd say the music on that record was worth it. Those guys were playing their hearts out over there. Oh, wait, wait, I got to take issue here. I mean, I agree, but I think that our audio engineer has removed some of the crackle. He has decrackled some of our records, most recently the Iceman's Band. Well, maybe our audio engineer should uh, be a little bit less of a boozy bitch about it. <laughs> oh, jeez. I'm hurt. <laughs> Why do you guys I, feel the need to bring up I'm the audio engineer every episode now? <laughs> I, mean, I thought you were our sound guy and nothing more. Let the... Let the people have an illusion that we have a whole team like backing us up here. Separate but equal. Oh, whoa. <laughs> so, anyways, this is Charles Lloyd in the Soviet Union. Charles Lloyd, he was the sax man you heard there. Mm-hmm. Charles Lloyd has kind of gone all over the place. This, I was excited you picked a Charles Lloyd record because this is a guy that... I've bought records from in the past, some to keep, some to flip. And I've always just been impressed with the range of material that I've heard. He goes all over the place. I'm sure you're going to dig more into that later on. But I'm, I'm very curious to explore more of this guy's work. Yeah, he's he's had a pretty interesting life. And as you can maybe kind of hear from that clip, or maybe you'll pick up later, it's very Coltrane-influenced, I would say. Mm -hmm. At least in this era, he's still making music and putting music out today. Okay. Wow. Yeah, this definitely has that post-Coltrane spiritual jazz vibe, which is one of my favorite things to collect. Yeah. This was recorded in 67. So that that's the... Uh, Coltrane probably died right after this was recorded. Yeah, Coltrane died July 17th in 67. Oh, wow. So maybe not actually post-Coltrane, but I mean, kind of probably would have been right around the same time mm -hmm. yeah this is like when that era of jazz was really kicking off i feel like it's about a six year time frame 67 to 73 where a lot of the best records of this sound were made yeah there's definitely some far out moments on this mm -hmm. and this is a quartet right true i'm gonna shade in all the characters in in the story here and then I'm going to tell a little story about the, the actual festival recording that that was played at, because that's also very interesting. Okay. Peter, do you have any Charles Lloyd records, or have you listened to him much before this? No, I have to admit, I was not really familiar with him at all going into this. Okay. Well, we're all going to learn together. Take it away, Jeremy. Well, Charles Lloyd was a Memphis boy, so he grew up, you know, in the blues, gospel, jazz, had all those kind of influences that we heard on Memphis Underground, the previous record, kind of highlighting the different Memphis sounds. But yeah, he grew up kind of immersed in that, and he started playing saxophone at age nine, and in his teens was backing Howlin' Wolf and B.B. King. Hmm. Uh, Damn. Yeah, that's... It's, Kind of blew me away. And then at 18, he left uh, L.A. 
to get a degree at University of Southern California. Hmm. Not the typical destination for an up-and-coming jazz guy. Well, you might be surprised. Okay. While he was out there, he would jam in the nightclubs with Ornette Coleman, maybe my favorite, and Don Cherry and Eric Dolphy. Okay. Legends. Well, all like very key players. Yeah, and he was out there just jamming with those dudes while going to college. And before he started going solo, after, you know, he's playing around L.A., started playing with Cannonball Adderley is where he kind of got his in into the, the big-time jazz scene. Nice. And then started releasing his own solo albums two years after that. Just like that. Just like that. We'll get into more of him later, but I just want to move along and kind of like mention all the players because these are like big name dudes on this thing. Mm -hmm. I didn't recognize at first because Sean pointed this out to me in a record store when we were on a tour and he's like, you got to get this record. And I was like, okay, cool. And like, got it. It's good. And then when I was considering doing it for the podcast, that's when I was like, oh my God. It's got Keith Jarrett, Ron McClure, and Jack Dejanet as mm-hmm. the backing band. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the last guy I mentioned, Jack Dejanet, he's a Chicago boy. And he joined up with Charles Lloyd when Charles Lloyd was in New York after his LA time and he was starting to do his own solo stuff. Uh, he went on to play with Bill Evans, Miles Davis. Maybe you've heard of him. Uh, that's a guy that played with Coltrane, right? <laughs> yeah. John McLaughlin, Chick Corea, Stan Getz, and like tons of others. Herbie Hancock. Um, I know another one. Yeah? Johnny Hammond Smith. The record we're doing next week. Ooh. Oh. I thought you were going to mention the Beach Boys. No, that was Charles Lloyd, right? Hmm? That was Charles Lloyd that played with the Beach Boys, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, we're talking Jack Dejanet. Oh, Keep up. oh, I'm sorry. You can cut that. You can cut that whole thing. <laughs> no, I'm going to leave it. <laughs> but yeah, Jack Dejanet's the drummer, and he was extremely influential in the jazz world, and especially in the realm of bringing like fusion, like rock influences into jazz. Yeah, definitely one of the biggest jazz fusion drummers of all time. So we got him on the drums. Charles blowing horn over there. And on piano, the guy I mentioned earlier, Keith Jarrett. Do y'all know about him? Yeah, I've heard of him. Another fusion legend. Yep. And he was also, he played it with Miles Davis at the same time as Jack Dejanet. And they've like worked kind of as like the rhythm section in a few other projects. I was going to say, you often see their names together. They were like pretty close friends, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah. Keith Jarrett. Born in Allentown, Pennsylvania, the city with no limits. City without limits, is that their thing? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) He started piano at age three and was on a TV show like talent contest by age five. And he was like a genius when he was a kid. They already knew he was some kind of... Prodigy? Prodigy, that's Mm. the word I was looking for. He left to Berkeley School of Music and then moved to New York after a year of that. He wasn't having it. (laughs) Those kids are probably too dumb at Berkeley for him. Probably. 
but he joined uh, Art Blakey and his Jazz Messengers, little jazz group back in the day. Yeah, jazz group specifically notable for hiring extremely talented but not yet famous musicians. Yeah, and they... It's like a second city of music, of jazz music. Definitely, definitely. Yep, and that's where Jack DeJohnette first saw Keith Jarrett and talked him into joining up with him and Charles Lloyd for this quartet. And Keith Jarrett, do you guys know about Keith Jarrett and like some of the things he's known for? I mean, I, I more know him for the music and just seeing his name on records all the time for the last, you know, 15 years. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know if I've ever actually studied his life a lot. He's never been one of my favorite pianists, so I haven't dug in deeper on him. So Oh, he's he's definitely either my favorite or one of my like top three jazz piano dudes. Well, I'm I'm ready to be convinced. Well, this won't convince you. This will make you think <laughs> badly of him. But it seems like his like genius prodigy side drives these kind of quirky things. Mm, one of those. One of those. He has a a big hatred of any extraneous noise during his, like especially during his solo piano things he's done mm-hmm. to the extent that he's like stopped shows for people coughing and he's handed out cough drops at the door to his shows before. <laughs> <laughs> oh my. He's well, that's just trying to win me over. Yeah. He's had, <laughs> I like some cough drops. He's had shows where he he doesn't like the bright lights on him, so he's had them like turn the lights way down or off, which kind of defeats the purpose for the audience who's come there to watch him. <laughs> uh, and he was pretty strongly anti-electronic music and synthesizers and all that when those started coming into play. Right. He was all about that like real piano sound. Mm. So kind of uh he's got some quirks to him but it's because he's maybe the greatest living jazz piano player one could make that argument and most importantly for my enjoyment he sued steely dan because <laughs> did he win uh yeah get some they, bucks out of him hell yeah their song gaucho is that how you say it yeah uh was just like one of the parts of it was like a straight up ripoff from one of his uh, songs. I love Steely Dan, but I've got no problem with them being forced into spreading the wealth. <laughs> yeah, it's a little consolidated, isn't it? <laughs> Trust busting. Yep. And then the last guy, Ron McClure, he was. Brother of Troy McClure? No. Actor Troy McClure. What what might what might we know Ron McClure from? (laughs) You may know Ron McClure from (laughs) from working. He's the bassist with Buddy Rich, Maynard Ferguson, Herbie Mann, and most importantly, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Well, often underwhelming white musicians, except for Herbie Mann. Wow. Sean's laying it down. Yeah, to all of our Buddy Rich fans, sorry. (laughs) You all know what he is. No one's going to argue with that statement. He's talented and his music (laughs) often sucks. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I remember when I first, like, heard of Buddy Rich. It would have been, like, there's YouTube already. 
And I was like, wow, he can drum so good. Wow. Mm -hmm. And then actually listened to his music and was like, this doesn't do anything. Yeah. There's a reason why all of his like top YouTube videos are just crazy drum solos because you get past that and everybody (laughs) just checks out immediately. (laughs) Unless you're like, I don't know, a music student. Yeah. He's from... Has Jared Seldner made you watch Buddy Rich videos, Sean? Is that where you're going with this? I like that he's been referenced on this show twice without us offering any explanation as to who we're talking about. Don't explain it. Let it go. (laughs) Ron McClure is from New Haven, Connecticut. Started piano at age five. Then he started learning accordion and bass. And he studied with Don Sebesky. Oh, okay. The string arranger guy that I think we've mentioned on a few previous episodes. Mm -hmm. Who you're kind of on the fence with his work, and I've already expressed my love of Don Sebesky's arrangements. Yeah, I'm not thrilled with the Sebesky string sections, but... I mean, he got a name drop on a Quasimodo record, so that's pretty legendary in my book. (laughs) Automatic. (laughs) So those are the guys... Charles Lloyd on sax, Keith Jarrett piano, Ron McClure on bass, and Jack DeJohnette on drums. I'm going to jump into the next track, Sweet Georgia Bright. that 
Keith Jarrett on piano was kind of dropping in and out there. I wonder if he was distracted by the fact that the word bright was in the title of that piece. (laughs) Even the song was too bright for him. (laughs) Yeah. That said, man, that was some, uh, like that was a dangerous weapon of a sax that, uh, Charles Lloyd was wielding there. That was some All those guys were just going too hard on that one. Jack was just shredding. Certified shred TM. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty wild stuff. Wild stuff. (laughs) And it's wild stuff. But remember, this is live in the Soviet Union. Mm Mm-hmm. I can't imagine what they were thinking. (laughs) I know what they were thinking. (laughs) So I'm about to tell you about what they were thinking. (laughs) All right. So it was actually recorded in Estonia, which... At first blush, I was like, Soviet Union. I assumed it was like Russia proper, but as Eastern Bloc country, Estonia. And in Estonia, they had a jazz scene starting in like the 50s that was kind of small. And because it was kind of a separate country from like the main Russia part of the Soviet Union, the clamps were not as tight and things kind of happened without anybody stopping them. And they started having jazz concerts and come 1966, they established the Tallinn Jazz Festival, (laughs) which was their, you know, their first actual festival kind of coming out from the underground and being like, we're having a jazz festival. So that was 66, and then this was actually recorded in 67, the second year of the Tallinn Jazz Festival. Also, the last year of the Tallinn Jazz Festival. (laughs) (laughs) Until the Soviet Union dispersed. Hmm. I also just want to say that... uh, Like 20-something years later. uh, Estonia is just across the pond, a.k.a. the Baltic Sea, to uh, Sweden and Norway, which have always had fairly active jazz scenes. A lot of American jazz guys would have long residencies in those countries at times. Yeah, I think, if I remember, it's closer to Norway than it is to, like, Moscow. Yeah, it's right across the Baltic Sea is Sweden and then Norway, and then you got Finland right above it. Which, I don't know how much Finnish jazz there's been. There's a lot of, like, weird Finnish, like, folk music and freak folk and stuff that's happened, but I don't know how much actual jazz has come out of there could be a lot i don't know i don't know yeah there's some of that stuff kind of works into that freak folk yeah it's got crossover for sure just to give a little background on how the ussr felt about jazz music initially in the 1920s when jazz first started appearing in the ussr they actually encouraged it and got behind it because it was seen as the music of an oppressed people in America, black people. And it was seen as like an attempt at liberation from their oppression, which the USSR was all about liberating the oppressed. Or that's what they say at least. (laughs) But by the 1930s, they began to regard it as bougie and decadent. And in particular, the saxophone was seen as being like the symbol of decadence and was actually banned. While jazz wasn't necessarily banned per se, 
the saxophone was. Hmm. It makes sense because the jazz bands of that time were pretty much all big bands that primarily operated in kind of, you know, bougie clubs kind of thing. It was generally more of an upper class thing to be a jazz fan. I mean, there was also, there was like underground small units, but that's not what we have a lot of recorded history of from that time period, at least. Pretty much from that era on, the USSR, like really, I don't think it outright banned jazz, but it was deeply like discouraged. Through World War II, it remained that way. Bands would play music similar to jazz and give themselves different genre labels to be able to get away with it. But yeah, jazz outright was seen as dangerous and something that was hurtful to the USSR project. Hmm. And that carried on until about the mid-60s when Khrushchev took over. And he started a period that was called the Khrushchev Thaw, where he started kind of loosening rules and restrictions and allowing more international influence into the USSR. So that would have been right around, I mean, right after that is when in Estonia, they felt, you know, safe enough to actually put on a jazz festival. And the initial festival, from my understanding, was mostly regional acts and bands from the Eastern Bloc. But in 67, they really wanted Charles Lloyd to come. And he agreed to come. And a private American organization actually paid like the band and for their plane tickets Hmm. and they entered as tourists so that the USSR wouldn't just send them back and catch wind that they were jazz dudes about to unleash some dangerous music. Are we sure that that private American organization wasn't in fact the CIA? Well, it likely was Okay, the CIA or some CIA front trying to get jazz music into Russia. Yeah. So this whole record is uh, American attempt at uh, subversion through culture. <laughs> this is a propaganda record. <laughs> I thought we said no propaganda records. <laughs> I I never heard that rule. <laughs> All right, we'll we'll allow we it. We just said it. But yeah, there's a whole history. This is an infiltration <laughs> record. <laughs> if that like idea interests you, there's a whole history of the CIA funding different artists to go across seas and play and rumors that they helped like fund and push different songs and artists. So, Mm -hmm. and some of it's come out to be fact like Jackson Pollock. There's like papers that were released showing that they were backing Jackson Pollock. Yeah. So that's an interesting, uh, somewhat conspiracy, somewhat fact rabbit hole to go down. Right. Right. But so 67, Charles Lloyd and his quartet of jazz masters go across to Estonia and they are set up to play Saturday night at this big festival. And five minutes before they are about to go on, they are told that they're not going on. Whoa. Five minutes. Yeah. The (laughs) festival organizers decided it was too risky. Whoa. And thought that it would be too dangerous to allow them to play their music. And this is this is all instrumental, right? Like, there's not even a clear message associated with this. It's just the style of music. Correct. Huh. That's fascinating. 
So they went and played basketball. They just left and played some basketball. <laughs> that made me happy when I saw that. I yeah. like basketball. I don't know if the audience knows that. And occasionally we do just fly over to Estonia to play a quick game. Yeah. <laughs> Funded by the CIA. Yeah. So Charles Lloyd was insistent, though, and like, come on, you got to let me play. And they're like, well, you could do these workshops maybe over here away from crowds. And he was like, no, I came here to play. So Sunday night, they're scheduled to go back on and they go on. The crowd goes nuts. Mm -hmm. The crowd is huge and is eating this stuff up because Soviet jazz does not sound like this. Right, right. <laughs> oh, man, that's so I mean, radical. I mean, even... By regular jazz standards, this is radical. I was going to say, a lot of time. American jazz doesn't quite sound like this either, so. <laughs> yeah, and this, uh, the Charles Lloyd Quartet, they were actually catching a lot of steam in San Francisco and were opening for, like, Janis Joplin and, like, a bunch of the hippie kind of stuff out west. Mm -hmm. And a lot of their following in America was, like, the hippie kind of crowd. That makes sense. The crowd's eating it up, and they pull the plug on the system after, like, a song or two, hmm. and the crowd, like, starts going wild, and they're worried that the crowd is going to riot, so they plug the power back in and let Charles Lloyd and the quartet continue. Damn. So are you saying the second half of this record is a lot more mellow, or...? No, <laughs> no, actually, probably that first song is the most mellow. Well, the next one I'm going to play starts off kind of mellow. Okay. A little bit of a breather. Yeah. It's literally called Love Song to a Baby. <laughs> the most inoffensive song title of all time. Yeah. And so I'll just wrap up uh, about the set. But they end up finishing their set, and apparently there was like eight and a half minutes straight of just like riotous applause. And while that was happening, the stagehands took Jack Dejanet's drums off stage and hid them so that there was no chance they could play an encore. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, and after that show, the festival was shut down. And didn't come back for 23 years. Yeah, until uh, the Soviet Union had dissolved. Yep. <laughs> so here's some more of that dangerous music. This is Love Song to a Baby. Yeah, hide your impressionable youth.
don't know if you guys could hear that there. There's like a little sound that almost sounded like a voice. Did you guys pick up on that? Mm-hmm. I heard yeah, it. that's another one of Keith Jarrett's quirky things. He does these kind of strange vocalizations while he's playing that uh, other piano players have been known to do that too. Mm-hmm. Thelonious kind of, Monk. Yeah, totally. Yeah, like following the melody. Yeah. So, yeah. Another that, interesting little thing. That's something I've always been strangely interested in as far as like, especially jazz recordings is when you can hear someone humming along. I just, I always have loved that. And in soul music too, you find that a lot in some of the more rowdy songs. You can hear the band shouting, even though they don't actually have like a vocal microphone next to them. Something about that energy. I just love it. I remember years ago when I was first listening to Thelonious Monk, I was at the time living with several friends, but they were all gone. It was right around Christmas time. And I was really new to Thelonious Monk's music. I think it was my roommate's CD and I was listening alone in the house. And I kept thinking I was like hearing someone talking in the house and then I'd pause the recording and look around the house and nope, no one's here. Put press play again. Is there someone talking in the house? No, it was just Thelonious <laughs> humming along to himself playing. That's great. Far out. This record, it was recorded in 67, but actually came out in 1970. And not too long after that, Charles Lloyd kind of fell off and moved to, he moved to Big Sur, California, because he had a bit of a drug problem. And previous to that, uh, Jack Dejanet had already quit the band, saying that Charles Lloyd's playing had gone flat, which is probably related to the drugs and probably also related to the drugs. He played with the beach boys, right, Sean? Yeah. <laughs> that So that was the first Charles Lloyd record I got is his 1971 album, warm waters, which I bought. Cause I was like, I know this is a jazz guy. I see him around and I'm going to check it out. And I listened to it and it's a, it's a pop record. Like there's barely any jazz on it at all. And then, you know, I'm looking at the uh, personnel on it. I'm like, wait, the the Beach Boys are on this record. Like, how did that happen? Who is this guy? And I kind of wrote him off for a little while. I was like, oh, it's like weird pop crossover that I don't think lands. And then I picked up another 67 record, Forest Flower, on the Atlantic label. And that record kind of blew my mind. It's like even a little bit more spiritual jazz, free jazz oriented than this record is. And everything I've heard aside from that, I really like. And then hearing the jazz stuff in context has actually made me appreciate the pop stuff more. Yeah. Warm Waters. And then he did a funk record after that called Waves in 72. That's also really interesting. Yeah. He went all over the place musically. Yeah. And he's, he's still around. What is he doing nowadays? Yeah. He describes kind of like the mid seventies through, I believe it was early to mid eighties as like a period of exodus though it seems like he was still putting out music as just really unrelated to jazz. Mm-hmm. And then he almost died from a medical thing and decided he needed to like get back to work making music. And he's still putting out stuff to this day. Well, that's cool. I think his last one was like three years ago, 2017. Nice. Wow. So, like, yeah, cool. and he's still playing like far out jazz sax. Love it. 
yeah, I, I've got a lot more records to explore by him, and I'm I'm definitely planning on picking up pretty much any Charles Lloyd thing that I can find for a reasonable price in the future. <laughs> I liked his flute playing too. Oh yeah, I liked his flute playing on that last track. Yeah, he was renowned. Like he was seen as a very good sax player who was influenced by John Coltrane, but his flute playing was seen as like he had a unique singular voice and really kind of carried jazz flute in new directions. You know who else occasionally played jazz flute? John Coltrane. (laughs) (laughs) And Farrell Saunders, who was with him at the end. Um, I think those two guys definitely inspired a lot of other forward thinking jazz musicians to try out a little bit of flute here and there. Cause you, you hear it pop up more often during this, this period of this subgenre. Didn't Coltrane also sometimes play sleigh bells? Yeah, but they all did. Oh, is that, that's, that's a common thing. <laughs> that's like the free jazz staple is a good sleigh bell. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe some macadamia nuts. <laughs> what? What? <laughs> what? You lost I, both I of us know. with that reference. <laughs> I feel like I've seen some free jazz cats play like very bizarre percussive types of things like dragon, you know, macadamia nuts around. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Random percussive type things that can be thrown upon the drums. Yeah. 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 So, (laughs) yeah, that's one of the things that makes this record cool is there's not a lot of free jazz that's pretty cheap. A lot of it holds value. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think Charles Lloyd's records a lot of times are a little undervalued because of his extreme range of material. And, you know, some of these records are critically acclaimed and some of them are definitely not. Like, I don't think there's a lot of good reviews of more of his pop crossover stuff, but I think it's all worth a revisit. And yeah, that's what this show is all about. Taking those names that aren't held in high regard anymore for sometimes no good reason and giving him that fresh look yeah i'm not even sure like who to record like anyone i can think to recommend that is similar to this the records are not going to be dollar bin records yeah it's like joe mcphee you're not going to find him for cheap right but you know jazz is definitely one of those genres that's easier than others to find interesting stuff for cheap Especially if you go into a record store and all they've got is rock records on the wall, dig through that jazz section. You might find some expensive, amazing stuff for real cheap, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And like we said, yeah, the Colm concert you might find. Yeah. um, By Keith Jarrett. That one's a little more meditative, but uh, phenomenal and usually cheap. And one of the most fun things about collecting jazz vinyl in general is that the names of the players are almost always highlighted you know oftentimes they're on the cover right next to the main artist or at least very easily very easy to find on the back of the record and you know jazz guys worked in different groups constantly it was pretty rare for a jazz guy to only be in one group for a long period of time so when you find a jazz record that you like just look at the personnel try and keep in the back of your head and if you see one of the guys on a different record maybe it's worth checking out rad Well, I'm going to play the last jam on this as we go out. We've said what we need to say. Yeah, I think (laughs) covered enough here. You got something to say, Peter? Oh, no, no. I, well, I guess something that it's interesting uh, when we do 
a more, even though this is, you know, fairly avant-garde by jazz standards, it's definitely the, the playing is much more rooted in jazz traditions. It's, it's interesting shifting to this from like soul jazz and kind of just seeing how different the approach actually is mm-hmm. when the, you know, when the, the players are much more rooted in traditional jazz, even in this style versus with soul jazz, a lot more funk and R and B works its way into the playing. And I, I just noticed that with having kind of transitioned between different albums recently. But, you know, I would, I would probably describe this really as a jazz fusion record because that mm-hmm. second track we heard could be argued that that was a soul jazz song. I mean, they were playing it with a little more intensity than a lot of, you know, show uh, soul jazz contemporaries, but they covered a lot of different influences on this record, all, you know, within the context of jazz and often hinting at free jazz without ever going like full, crazy, intense free jazz. Yeah. <laughs> this isn't like uh, Anthony Braxton or something. Right. Yeah. Not quite that far. Yeah. And you guys heard like 10%, like those songs are all long <laughs> and go into a lot of extremely varied parts and different dudes take solos didn't even cover a bass solo or drum solo i'm ashamed but (laughs) that's actually um, another another thing that i've been thinking about with this versus more song oriented you know lyrical music you can usually get a good feel of the song in about a minute and a half to two minute clip you hear pretty much everything it has to offer more or less with that music whereas this these short two minute clips just don't quite cut it yeah, there's so many jazz songs where it's like, oh man, eight minutes in and it gets crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Once the intro is done. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely moments of that in this. Listening back, I was after after I picked this record and listened back, I was like, wow, this record is really great. Like it's I mean, it's a unique uh performance being in the Soviet Union and it's extremely good. Yeah, I mean, it would be a curiosity even if it wasn't any good, but it turns out it's really fascinating and excellent. Word. Well, let's let's uh, head on down the road, eh? Yeah, let's get on down that dirty, grimy country road. This is all the time the CIA has paid us for, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for listening to I'd Buy That for a Dollar. My name is Jeremy Ruggles. I'm Sean Hartman. And I am Peter Cook. A bye. Oh, the song is called Tribal Dance. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Thanks for listening to another wonderful episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. If you haven't followed us on our social media, we got an Instagram page, we got a Facebook page, but we also have a Facebook group if you'd like to get real hands-on with your interactions. Talk about dollar records you've been scoring lately, stuff you're into, maybe give some suggestions of records that you would like us to talk about. That's the I'd Buy That for a Dollar group on Facebook. Join the discussion. Thanks for listening. Thank you.